You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Mark DiPerno is an occupational therapist and serves as the outreach coordinator for the Citroen Healthcare Center, a Move United member organization based in New York State. He was instrumental in establishing the STARS program, Success Through Adaptive Recreation and Sports, for individuals with physical disabilities. In addition, he serves as a manager for the U.S. wheelchair curling team and has been instrumental in growing the sport all across the country. So we sit down and chat about what is sometimes referred to as shuffleboard on ice. Mark, I thought we'd just jump right in. And, and uh, first of all, how, how did you get into the sport of, uh, of, of curling? Yeah, great question, Sean. Uh, I'm an occupational therapist by trade. And uh, at the early part of my career back in 2001, uh, the facility that I currently work at, we entertained the idea of developing an adaptive sports program, myself and a few other therapists. And wheelchair basketball was the first sport that we uh, began and developed. And about a year into that programming, I received a a cold call, if you will, from a local curling club here in Utica, New York, Hmm. asking if I would bring the wheelchair basketball team to the curling club to try the sport of wheelchair curling. I knew nothing of the sport. Of course, curling is something that I see every few years on television, and then it just kind of dissipates. Um, But I was intrigued, as were some of the athletes. So that call led to me and roughly seven local wheelchair basketball participants trying wheelchair curling for the first time, and many of which fell in love with it immediately. And it just kind of fostered growth locally and eventually nationally from there. And, and I was going to ask how you, how you made that leap from a, from a you know, local to, to being involved with the, with the national team. So how did that happen? Yeah, so we learned quickly, um, having done some, you know, this is pretty much pre-internet, just a lot of phone calls and cold calls and, and hard mails. Uh, we learned that there was another team. The only other team in the United States was in Belfast, Maine. For us, it's about a seven and a half hour drive from Utica. And uh, essentially, we entertained the idea of traveling there for a weekend friendly competition. They then came to Utica maybe a month or two thereafter. And and a competition was born, if you will. Hmm. Um, one year thereafter, the United States Curling Association reached out to myself and said, listen, what do you think about the idea of having a national championship, even though there's only two teams at this time, because there's going to be a world championship as well as a Paralympic medal sport for wheelchair curling in 2006, mm-hmm. hosted by Torino, Italy. So, of course, that piqued my interest, as it did for the local athletes, as well as in Belfast, Maine. And from there, that competition evolved into more teams, both in North you know, New England and in the northeastern portion of our country. It led to interest from others across, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota. And that's where I became more involved nationally, taking on this role as an outreach developer, program coordinator, uh, team leader, if you will, is my official title. Mm -hmm. And so was that first national championship, just two teams playing against each other? That's correct. It was the best out of five. And it came down to the final fifth game and truly the last shot. It was that close. It was exciting. Belfast won. That particular event, um, three games to two, three matches to two, mm-hmm. um, but they were kind enough to select one of our local athletes here in Central New York to serve as an alternate for that particular team, which went over to uh, 
Scotland for a world championship. Um, from that point forward, we were fortunate enough to uh, defeat Belfast the following year to represent United States at the next world championship. And from there, we saw some initial growth in our region in particular. Uh, and then eventually me and as well as a, a few other resources, USA Curling, making those phone calls to other facilities across the nation, mm -hmm. uh, those that maybe had close proximity to rehabilitation centers, uh, working with a variety of, you know, vendors that obviously provide durable medical equipment and wheelchairs to those locations and trying to just connect the dots to see if we could find athletes with disabilities close to a curling club, if that curling club was accessible and eventually, you know, growing this grassroots program across the nation. And, and you mentioned uh, your official title and, and I've talked to a number of NGB uh, uh, staff and, and liaisons. What, what does a team leader do? I've never asked that question. So I'm going to ask that, <laughs> ask that of you. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's truly a jack of all trades. Um, my primary function initially was to grow the sport, right? At the grassroots level, educate those in the communities across the nation where there are curling clubs, talk about adapting the sport, how to make the club accessible, and just try to connect those dots and build a pipeline of athletes all the way up to the Paralympic, you know, the top of the pyramid, if you will. Um, in addition to that, more recently over the last, I'd say eight to 10 years, I also work with the national team specifically with trying to develop a calendar uh, where they would train what we call high performance camps domestically, as well as compete internationally as a precursor to the annual world championships and eventually qualifying for the Paralympic Winter Games. Many times I will travel with the team and, and do those things obviously firsthand, assist with training and competition from a distance, uh, but more so working from behind the scenes, behind the desk, and just making sure everything's moving in the right direction for our athletes, as well as for the program at large. That's fantastic. And you mentioned obviously the growth and, and it makes sense that the Northeast would become a, a kind of a, a, a pocket or a, or a place where there a number of current clubs already exist. You mentioned the kind of the upper, upper North or Midwest, I guess, with Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Um, are, are you seeing other, other growth outside of those areas? And, and uh, in terms of, of not only where there might be current clubs, but where there were there adaptive or accessible curling clubs. Absolutely. The growth has been really growing tremendously in the last, I'd say, three years. And a part of that is always due to the spike of interest related to the Olympics and, of course, the Paralympics. You know, curling is always well viewed as a spectator sport mm -hmm. uh, through television, through NBC and other affiliates. And that always causes just a burst of excitement and energy at the local level across the nation. We capitalize on that by all means on the Paralympic side as well. And um, in addition to our men's U.S. Olympic team winning gold in 2018, even mm -hmm. further boosted our potential of growing the sport. And we've capitalized on that. Outside of those regions you mentioned, we've seen tremendous growth in California and the Los Angeles area in particular. Uh, of course, Seattle, Washington, Oregon, even down in Florida, had a clinic this past summer in Jacksonville. Um, so we're seeing all quadrants of the country, of course, as high in west as Alaska, right down to Florida and the southern tips. Um, it's it's an amazing sport. It lends itself to truly all ability levels. Um, it is a seamless correlation of the wheelchair user with the able-bodied standing version of the sport where they can coexist and participate and compete together. That's hard to come by in most traditional sports as we know it. And it's just lended itself to just a lot of fun and great experiences. And, and so um, 
what what is it about the sport? So what what draws you? What draws players to want to uh, to get involved? Truly, it's a strategy. You know, it, it's so much more than what you might see on television. It is pushing the stone, which is roughly 42 pounds of granite, sliding it down the ice at approximately 120 feet of distance and trying to place it in strategic locations. Of course, the objective is to score points and the most points wins the match. Um, but when you're working with athletes that have competed for many years or even those that are new to the sport, once they get that muscle memory and have the ability to really execute those shots, now it's strategy. Game on. You have to understand those three or four shots ahead of time to allow for you to build an end, as you will, to score multiple points. Um, so the strategy is something that you're always learning. You see so many different scenarios over the course of time. You just kind of pocket that information because you know it's going to come out of your back pocket at some point in the future. Um, so it's the friendliness. It's, it's the camaraderie. It's, you know, it's just the, the fun nature. It's not a physically demanding sport in terms of the version of you know, the Paralympic sport. It does require some upper body strength, coordination, and functionality. Um, but it's not a fast-paced, dynamic sport by any means, comparatively to other Paralympic sports. Uh, it's, it, as I mentioned before, it just fits seamlessly into the traditional version of the sport, which has been around for over 400 years. Mm -hmm. Exactly. There's a long international uh, um, uh, history behind the sport. So, yes. and uh, and and you got into some of the things, Mark, that I wanted to talk about in terms of like just the, the specifics of the sport. You talked about, I think the you know the it, you call it a, a court, you call it a, a just a, a sheet of ice, but as you said, it's 120 feet long. So maybe walk us around, walk us through the dimensions and and the kind of the parameters of the sport. Yeah, so we're going to call it a rink, okay. and we're going to play on a specific sheet on that on that ice field, if you will, called the rink at the local club or at a specific venue. Two teams competing against one another on a sheet of ice, um, and the objective, again, is to push those stones, which are 42 pounds of granite. Uh, each team has eight stones, four persons to a team, so each athlete throws two stones over the course of the match, if you will. Uh, the objective, again, is to slide that stone down the ice approximately from house to house or target to target, if you will, roughly 120, 125 feet, depending on where you might start okay. uh, and where the stone ends. Um, think of it as some refer to it as shuffleboard on ice in terms mm. of that visual, uh, but certainly much different given the, the dynamics of the ice and the humidification and the air temperature and mm -hmm. just you know the breakdown of the ice over the course of many many stones rolling if you mm -hmm. will over that ice continuously um a typical match lasts approximately two hours and over the course of a match you will throw all of those stones each team of course eight stones each for a total of 16 being pushed in one direction towards that scoring area which we call the house and whosoever stones are closest to the center of that house will accumulate points. And we will have eight ends, eight total ends in a match. So pushing all 16 stones to and from a total of eight times and coming up with a winner at the end. Of course, if there's a tie, we'll play an extra end to break that tie. Uh, no games and end tie. And as you might imagine, uh, this is a game of truly centimeters, sometimes millimeters. <laughs> and the naked eye can often discern who's closest to the center. So, of course, we have equipment to rule out that uh, 
ambiguity. And, and it truly does come down to those centimeters more times than you might imagine. So th there actually is measurement uh, measurements that, that are taken in order to, to verify whether a team's... Yeah, uh, essentially a large caliper, if you will, which is placed yeah. in a specific location and measures each stone accordingly. And and just so that I, I got this right, and I'm not confused, so you said that, um, uh, that there, there are eight stones. Are each... Are those eight stones thrown at uh, during an end, and then so and then and that's just one end, and then and then eight stones are thrown again? Or I, mean, I want to make sure I got that part right. Yeah. So the sequence, if you will, four persons to a team. So let's say Team A wins the coin flip to start a match, or mm -hmm. another version to determine who goes first would be each team throwing one stone to closest to the center of the house, which we call the button, and we'll measure to see who's closest. And whoever's closest gets to decide if they want to throw the first stone or the second stone to begin the match. But essentially, the first team player on, I'll say, Team A throws their first stone. Then, of course, Team B comes into play and throws their first stone. Mm -hmm. You alternate back and forth, all eight stones for each team for a total of 16 stones all being thrown in an end to determine who's closest to the center of the house determine the score, and then uh, throw, if you will, or send all those stones back in the opposite direction in the same sequence, one, one, two, two, so on and so forth. Oh, gotcha. So that so so basically 16 stones are thrown in, in one end, and then you figure out the score, and then you wipe the wipe the slate clean, right, in terms of score, and then you, and then you rinse and repeat. Correct. Correct. And how many ends? You said there are eight ends then as well? Total of eight ends. Okay. And I would say on average, a typical score per end would vary from certainly zero is an option upwards of, you know, maybe three. Uh, if a team scores one, two or three in a given end, that's certainly good. On occasion, you might see four, five or even more points. That is less common. Mm -hmm. it certainly happens for a number of reasons. One team is executing extremely high or has better strategy. Perhaps the other team is inferior for whatever reason. And uh, you capitalize on those opportunities and score multiple, multiple points. But I'd say a typical match, a final score might be something to the effect of maybe five to three, six to four. Hmm. Sometimes you might get up there nine to seven, but often in the single digits for sure. Okay. That's good. That's, that's good to know. And, and you talked about, um, you know, obviously either throwing the stone first or last. Um, can you, can you, um, tell us, you know, what, what would be the advantage of doing one versus the other? Yeah, for sure. It, it's, it's a general rule of thumb. The advantage goes to the team that throws last. And the reason being is if you have not just to start the end by throwing the second stone, but more importantly, throwing that 16th and final stone mm -hmm. by having that last stone advantage, you can assess what's in front of you and determine if we Team A, for example, throwing the 16th stone might already be leading, having a stone or two closest to the center, gives you an opportunity to try to score a third point, for example. Mm. On the other side, if your team is looking like they're at a disadvantage, maybe they're down one or two, your stones are not closest to the center. Now you have the ability or the opportunity to potentially knock out one of those stones or even get closer to them to capitalize and score on that final stone. So having the last stone advantage is always ideal. Um, with that said, the team that starts with the last stone of any match doesn't necessarily keep that format for each and every end. 
whichever team scores points for that given end, they automatically must throw the first stone of the next end, therefore giving the other team the advantage to try to neutralize, if you will, mm-hmm. those opportunities. Yeah, so a level at least provides a better a, a level play, opportunity for a level playing field. <laughs> Correct. And that's where also strategy comes into play where you might assess the situation on your final stone or multiple final stones and say, you know what, it's to our advantage of having a blank end, as we call it, nobody scores. And that might mean a strategy where I'm removing stones repeatedly out of play because I want to retain that last stone advantage for the next end. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. the final eighth end. And I feel good coming home with the last rock (laughs) of the eighth end. That is interesting strategy. I like that. And so, um, just back, backing up a bit, uh, and you mentioned that there are uh, four members uh, of a team. Um, I understand it's co-ed, so there has to be at least one female and uh, on, on the team. Is that still correct? That is correct. It must be a mixed-gender team on the field of play at all times. Uh, there are five athletes to a team. There's always one alternate who's available for whatever reason as they arise. Um, And going back to the onset or the beginning of the sport, we learned quickly that there was a lot of interest on the male side. Uh, We struggled initially to find enough female interest, not just locally here in the New York State region, but also in New England. Uh, We found it that because this is a mandate for this particular sport, uh, we struggled to find new clubs in different regions of the country that had enough both male and or female participants to constitute a team that could compete both regionally and nationally. That has since been mitigated, you know, with enough visibility and opportunity mm-hmm. and interest. Uh, but other nations around the globe have also verbalized to this day some difficulty with getting enough of one specific gender to have enough competition internally and therefore compete at an international level. And then for those that are, you know, reading the, reading the article or even just listening to our conversation, uh, you know, maybe an obvious question or, or, or concern is, you know, how does even, because you talked about accessibility of clubs, how does one even get onto an ice? Because you know, I, I know, I know as, as someone who does have uh, mobility in my legs, I have trouble getting on the ice. So how does, how does one get on the ice? How does one position themselves? Um, you know, on the sheet to play uh, the game and, and uh, those types of things? Yeah, it's a great question. Usually wheels and ice don't mix very well. Um, I will tell you that access to the ice can be relatively simple for a variety of reasons. Those clubs that are currently quote unquote ADA compliant and accessible have a ramp. Of course, it would lead down to the field of play. Um, the ramp that would meet the ice threshold usually is about a four inch variant. So it's a very small portable ramp or one that can flip up and fold away, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, for those clubs that don't have that type of ramp, of course, one could be built, one could be rented, one could be purchased at a fairly low cost to make that field of play accessible. Um, other clubs that maybe are older um, that don't have the ramp from what we call the warm room, the spectators room where often meals and the restrooms are located, often the staircase leading down to the ice hall. Um, there's always a back door, if that makes sense. And that's where the ice maintenance equipment is stored. Usually it might entail going through a back door of the club externally uh, to access the ice the same way that you would use a Zamboni in hockey. Uh, we use a handheld device that scrapes the ice and resurfaces it before each match. Um, that's on wheels as well. So that requires the ability to get that wheel device onto the ice through 
again, I'll call it the back door. Mm -hmm. um, so there's always a means, always a way. It just might require some ingenuity or portal ramp or some aspect. But once the athletes are on the ice, um, first and foremost, you know, safety first for sure. Uh, we always want to make sure that the person has demonstrated enough uh, ability, core control, stability, et cetera, to maneuver a wheelchair on sound ground. Uh, and when they're on the ice, of course, wheels will slide and slip. But keep in mind, this is a static sport. There is no fast movement whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, once you are on the ice on your particular sheet, your field of play, your person, your three-person or four-person team, including yourself, you're going to stay mobilized in one specific area for the majority of that particular match. So to roll into position to throw your stones would entail roughly pushing maybe 10 to 15 feet into position, applying your brakes, brakes are mandatory for these particular wheelchairs, mm -hmm. having a buddy system where a teammate would hold your wheelchair from behind, either holding onto the rims or the actual frame of the chair to minimize any recoil when you're pushing that stone forward. Um, you do not need any special tires. You don't need any additional tread. Uh, what we do is clean the tires before accessing the ice to remove as much of the grit, mm -hmm. uh, any lint, uh, any type of hair. You'd be surprised the smallest amount of debris could cause a tremendous effect of the stone traveling down the ice. If it picks up a little piece of hair or a piece of grit, it can actually send that stone going sideways several feet. It's that uh, precise, if you will, and that clean of a field of play. Um, but otherwise, there are no modifications made whatsoever to the wheelchairs. Um, those who are power wheelchair users, the same thing applies. We clean the wheels before accessing the ice. Um, we use a buddy system. Often that's not necessary given the weight of a power wheelchair plus the user within it. Um, but sometimes it is necessary. Um, ultimately, it works very well on ice. It's a static sport, minimal movement up and down the ice to assess the score and shoot those stones in the opposite direction. And, and so the buddy system is not only allowed, which obviously it's allowed, but, but encouraged if, if necessary. Absolutely. You'll see 98% uh, of the time a buddy system is utilized across the globe in any international or Paralympic events. For those who maybe don't use a buddy system, it might be given a specific shot that's being called, which requires less power to push the stone and therefore less potential of a recoil. Or again, maybe that power wheelchair user who has such you know, significant weight given the weight of the wheelchair that doesn't have the potential of recoil. Um, we're not shooting shotguns on ice. We're pushing stones. It really doesn't have a whole lot of movement uh, within the sport. Because yeah, because I, I know if you've if seen if you've seen images of wheelchair curling, you always see someone behind uh, the, the the thrower or the pusher. Uh, so that that kind of explains explains why that is that there's a teammate that's 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 there as the, as the buddy to help help with that. And and since you mentioned powered powered um, chairs um, being allowed, I think that. That's that's a relatively new uh, rule, right? Where that that's allowed now, or or uh, and, and is there any other modifications or or uh, adaptations to allow uh, someone that uses a power chair or an electric electric chair to, to play the sport? Yeah, so the power chair is something that has always been allowable in the sport, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until I believe two thousand five maybe several years into the sport globally that we, meaning the World Curling Federation and the International Competition 
saw its first power wheelchair participant at the international level of competition. So that perhaps opened some more eyes to let's take a closer look to make sure that the rules are not to anybody's advantage or disadvantage. Mm-hmm. That led to some more, you know, obviously regulations and information regarding that specific uh, type of equipment for the sport. But ultimately, uh, there are no restrictions to the type or style of power wheelchair. Uh, because the sport is static, you as a power wheelchair user cannot push the chair forward while delivering the stone. You too must also be static, stationary. Um, what you can do, of course, is manipulate your position in space prior to pushing the stone, mm-hmm. whether that is using the seat elevator or tilting forward, right. whatever might assist the individual mm-hmm. to get a more safe and comfortable position for delivering the stone. That's, of course, allowable. Um, regarding other modifications outside of the wheelchair itself, every athlete is encouraged to use what's called a delivery stick. It's essentially a telescopic pole, looks very much like a painter stick with a very unique head that attaches to the handle of the stone itself. And those sticks are very much, while they are somewhat universal, they can be certainly modified to the person's needs of ability and and, and their adaptations. Um, Specifically the handle, the point of contact where the hand meets the extender scope as we call it, or the delivery stick. For those who maybe have quadriplegia and have lost of dexterity or minimal finger function, by all means, you can use gloves with Velcro. You can use tape to maintain that point of contact at all times. What you cannot do is modify the head that attaches to the handle of the stone to give you a, an advantage that would be um, not independent of the person's ability to push the stone freely. Um, you cannot have an electronical appliance that would grab and release by pressing a button, for example, no mechanical advantage. Uh, essentially, the person has to have the ability to push the stick, therefore push the stone, the stick being an extension of the person's arm, and releasing it freely without a mechanical advantage. Okay, that makes sense. And and um, and are, are, what are what are the you talked about delivery and pushing. Are there are there rules or parameters in terms of, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there's a line, obviously, that people can't cross. Um, and so how do how do people get into the What are the, the different ways that people might get into that motion? Um, and, and what are the rules behind? Um, I mean, are they allowed to you said they have to be static, so they're not allowed to to, to move their move their chair at all. Uh, and and does it have to be? You know, uh, you know, certain is there a, a certain ways to deliver or push the stick? Yes. So there is a center line, which is your reference, your frame of reference for delivering a stone, your starting point, if you will. That center line, as it implies, goes straight mm-hmm. down the center sheet of the ice from house to house, from scoring zone to scoring zone. Each athlete has the ability to position their stone prior to delivery 18 inches to the left or to the right of center line. That's your parameter. You have a 36 inch window of opportunity to position your stone and then position your wheelchair accordingly to allow for you to deliver that stone within those parameters. Um, You can't go outside those parameters for obvious reasons because it would create some unique angles and be obviously Mm -hmm. a different sport altogether. So 18 inches to the left or to the right of the center line is your starting point. With regards to types of deliveries, So while the telescopic pole, the delivery stick is certainly encouraged and used by everybody internationally, 
Um, prior to that, by the way, before the onset of the delivery stick, the sport was traditional in terms of a hand delivery. And that was because, well, how else would you deliver a curling stone? It's always been delivered by one's hand. So the athletes would have to have the ability to lean over to their side laterally, have enough trunk control, for example, mm. and core strength and ability to lean over, hold onto the handle, and push that stone over 100 feet down the ice. That didn't lend itself to everybody very well, as you might imagine. So a gentleman out of Canada said, you know what, we can do better, came up with a broomstick, a wooden broomstick, and attached a head. And that was the beginning, the precursor to the equipment that we use today. So that specific uh, delivery stick can be modified in a certain way that we call a dynamic delivery, even though I'm kind of contraindicating what I uh, said previously. The stone can actually be dynamic. The person cannot be dynamic. What I mean by that is you can modify the end of the delivery stick to essentially be so snug, so tight on the handle of the curling stone that you can apply pressure forward and backwards to kind of give you a little bit of momentum before you actually push hard enough to release the stone from the delivery stick and down the ice it goes. That's becoming more commonplace. Uh, many athletes prefer that. It gives them perhaps Again, momentum, maybe a better line of sight, a better line of delivery. Mm. And then when they feel after two or three warm-up pushes, they push a little harder and off it goes. Uh, again, keeping in mind, you cannot have a mechanical advantage. It has to be within parameters, meaning that uh, it will be observed and reviewed by the officials to make sure all sticks are compliant within those parameters. But it's a very simple adaptation. And so I wanted to pivot a little bit to like, you know, training uh, and how does one um, perfect or improve their, their skill of play. Uh, so let's say, you, you know, you offer one of those camps that you talk about and, and new players come out or players that have maybe tried it once or twice. What are the things that you work on? Repetition. I mean, as a new person coming into the sport, you have to throw a lot of stones you have to get an understanding of the different speed, different amount of force that goes into throwing different shots. Build that muscle memory. Strategy comes later. We're always learning strategy. So it's about understanding the person's ability, understanding their position and space that works best for them initially, the length of the delivery stick, um, how much strength they have, how do we modify accordingly. And once you determine that initial point, where they are going to deliver from successfully. Now we're going to throw a whole bunch of stones over and over again. And in the sport of curling, there are essentially two shots. And of course, a variation amongst them. The two shots are called a draw, which I'll call it a finesse shot. It's essentially trying to throw a stone to a specific location mm. with enough curl that it's going to potentially go around other stones, or even if there are no other stones in play, again, land in a specific location. The second shot is the takeout. That's the heater. That's the fastball. Okay. That has full intention of removing other stones from play. Again, based on strategy. So once you get throwing hundreds and hundreds or thousands of thousands of draws and or takeouts, <laughs> then you, the athlete, will start to understand that muscle memory, what it feels like on you know a specific call. I need to throw this particular stone in this location and you'll be successful more times than not. 
Yeah, because I imagine all of us have been there, right? Where we either throw, you know, whether it's whether it's even a game of cornhole or if it's a game of anything, <laughs> you either throw over, you know, too far and you, you put too much uh, umph behind it or you didn't, you didn't That's right. do enough and you came up way short. So it's just yeah, yeah. repetition, repetition, repetition to get uh, this is exactly the, how I need to throw it in order to get the result I want. Absolutely. Mark, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want to tell me about the sport or anything that we've missed or that you want to cover? No, I would just say that it is becoming the fastest growing winter sport, winter Paralympic sport in particular. Um, Of course, many other sports out there, sled hockey, biathlon, you know, uh, cross country skiing, Nordic, et cetera. Um, It is a team sport, obviously, but as an individual, you don't have to necessarily have a team in your location, your small town, your village, your city, wherever you might be coming from. You as an individual can compete at your local curling club alongside those who are standing. It is truly a seamless sport. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, hard to say for most sports out there uh, as a wheelchair user comparatively to somebody who's standing. There's often a barrier that doesn't afford those opportunities. Curling, it opens the door. It truly does. It's a fun social sport. Um, There are over 220 clubs across this nation. As you mentioned, as we discussed earlier, many of those clubs over the course of time have been found in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, New York, Massachusetts, the greater New England area. But over the recent past, we've seen great growth in the Carolinas, Florida, Arizona, California, Pacific Northwest, and of course, throughout the center of our country too. Um, USA Curling, you know, .org is, is your place to go mm-hmm. to find more details regarding those club locations, those resources. I, of course, am a wonderful resource to try to connect the dots or answer questions for those who maybe wonder, where's my closest curling club? Once I locate that club, who do I talk to to get in the door and how do I learn wheelchair curling? That's my objective to help those get into the sport and enjoy the sport. And, and we share that objective. We want people to, if they have not seen it, to check it out if they haven't played it, to try to find a club near 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 them to just kind of go out, show up, and, and give it a try. So, Mark, thank you so much for for the conversation today. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm.